You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. So let's start today's show with the question of the day. And I thought I'd ask you about electric Christmas lights. You can love them or hate them, but they're just about everywhere during the holiday season. And clearly, they haven't been around since the beginning of time. So do you know in what year Christmas lights were invented? And here are your choices. Were they invented in 1-1867, 1887 1882 1889 4-1894, or 5-1903? Again, when were electric Christmas lights invented? Was it 1867, 1882, 1889, 1894, or 5 1903? So go ahead, you know, throw another log on the fire. You can stare at your own set of twinkling bulbs while you ponder over these five choices. I'll let you know the date plus a little bit about the history of the lights at the end of this podcast. Since it is the holiday season, I thought it'd be nice to bring you a lighthearted story that really has little to do with any festive celebration, but I do hope that it brings a smile to your face. So here is the story of The Singing Mouse. On December 10th of 1936, a guy named Oscar Allred caught a mouse at the Chicago Industrial Home for Children, which is located in Woodstock, Illinois. While he was transferring it from a fruit jar to a cage the next day, the mouse decided to make a run for it, and he escaped. He quickly locked up the cat and searched for the mouse, but he had absolutely no luck. So on Saturday night, he summoned the superintendent of the home, that's a guy named Herbert C. Gensch, to the kitchen to help round up his little furry friend. So here you got two grown men chasing a mouse all around the kitchen when suddenly Mr. Gensch blurts out, Help! I've got the little pest! To which Mr. Allred replied, What do you mean you've got it? It didn't take him long to figure out what had happened. In fact, it's quite comical. The mouse had run up Mr. Gensch's right shirt sleeve all the way up to his armpit. Can you believe that? I can't speak for anyone else, but that's not the place I want a wild house mouse to be running around. Mr. Gensch quickly raised his right arm up in the air while he stuck his left hand into his shirt while he searched for the panicked mouse. But he couldn't grab it. Then suddenly the mouse fell down within his shirt to his waistline and it started running round and round there. Mr. Gensch was not a happy camper, and he started to squirm before he yelled, Do you think I want to get bitten? 
To which Mr. Allred immediately replied, It isn't a biting mouse, it's a singing mouse. As if a mouse that could sing would never bite someone. A fruit jar was grabbed and placed in front of Mr. Gensh's shirt to capture the mouse. And as soon as he was secured, the mouse was immediately transferred into a wire cage. He was once again the prisoner of the big bad humans. That bit about a singing mouse was no joke. The mouse really could sing. Quote, it starts with a soft whirling trill, the chirps coming so close together that they provide a continuous tone. This grows louder to an intensive crescendo and then jumps two notes higher for another crescendo. So what would you name your singing mouse? Old Blue Eyes wasn't a big star in 1936, in fact he wasn't a star at all, so calling him Frankie or Sinatra wouldn't have crossed their minds. Instead, they chose to name the singing mouse after the most famous mouse in the world. Yes, he was now Mickey the Singing Mouse. Mickey performed publicly for the first time the morning after his capture. 43 residents of the children's home all sat quietly through breakfast as Mickey belted out a steady stream of musical chirps. A star was born. But by that afternoon, the music had suddenly stopped. His adoring public was now in a panic. Was Mickey to ever sing again? No one knew the answer. An expert needed to be called in. That guy was Robert Bean. He was the assistant director to the Brookfield Zoo, and he made a visit to see Mickey that Tuesday. Now, he really had the intent of purchasing him, but no deal could be made. He felt that the price being asked was much too high for the zoo to afford, and Mr. Gensch claimed that someone else had already offered $100. That's about $1,600 today. And let's face it, no one's going to pay that much for a singing mouse that doesn't sing. But there was an even bigger problem facing Mr. Allred and Mr. Gensch. You see, Mickey was scheduled to appear the next day on the Chicago Jamboree Show. That was broadcast on WENR Radio, which was an NBC station, from 9.30 to 10 p.m. If he didn't sing then, Mickey's career was over. Luck was on their side. Mickey resumed singing that day and appeared ready for his debut before his adoring public. 300 fans packed the studio of the radio station to hear the amazing soprano sing. Announcer Don McNeil explained to the radio audience that this would be a historic day. Never before in the history of radio has a mouse sang over the airwaves. But just to be cautious, he did warn at the outset of the show that there was no way to be certain that the mouse would sing. The audience was silent while a microphone was held close to the cage and... Boy, did that mouse roar! His fine voice was clearly heard by all those listening, and then the orchestra joined in and Mickey once again sang. Announcer McNeil thanked, quote, Mickey the Mouse... And that's when Mr. Gensch chimed in and said, quote, I beg your pardon, but Mr. Bean of Brookfield was out to see the mouse and says that she is Minnie. Yeah, that's right. Mickey was not a he. He was a she. And Minnie was the typical house mouse. She was about two-thirds grown, and some compared her warbling to that of cooing lovebirds or canaries or meadowlarks, while others thought she sounded more like the sound of birds in the early morning or possibly a chirping cricket. No matter what she sounded like, the reviews in the paper the next day were glowing. 
The Chicago Daily News said, quote, Singing Mouse Scores Triumph in Radio Debut, while the Hartford Courant's headline was, Minnie Singing Mouse Runs Away with Show. What was most revealing in these stories was that Minnie didn't sing for pleasure. One could say that they were more like cries of duress. As news cameras flashed away after the show in the waiting room, Mr. Allred explained, quote, She sings when she's disturbed. See this little wire? I simply prodded her with it when she was announced, and I don't think I've ever heard her sing better. That's the end of the quote. The story in Minnie's picture made the news wires, and she became an instant celebrity. It was reported that fan mail started to pour in after her debut, all three pieces of it. Now, one of those letters was open with great trepidation because it was from the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Their fear that the SPCA would be outraged over the poking of an innocent animal with a wire was quickly calmed upon opening this envelope. Inside was a letter of congratulations, and they included a pamphlet on the proper care of pet mice. And you can bet that Santa didn't forget Minnie on Christmas of 1936. Under the tree that morning was a brand new cage with glass sides. In addition, a place of honor was reserved for her at the head of the school's Christmas dinner table, and she was asked to sing for the boys. I'm hoping she thanked them with a few Christmas carols. Behind the scenes, Minnie's newfound fame caused quite the stir among the church officials. The children's home was operated by the Free Methodist Church, and they objected to all the attention that Minnie was bringing their institution. Mr. Ginch told the press, quote, Our folks don't object to Minnie. In fact, all the children and the supervisors at the home have gotten awfully fond of her, and they hate to give her up. He continued, quote, But our church is opposed to theaters. It was ultimately decided that the church had to turn the care of Minnie over to another organization. The Woodstock Civic Club was chosen to manage Minnie's career, and her new keeper was club member Dwight L. Lichty. It was quite a sweetheart of a deal for the church. They no longer had to care for the mouse, you know, deal with bookings, contracts, transportation, all that, yet they still got to keep most of the profits. And the Civic Club followed through with their part of the bargain and managed to secure Minnie a national radio contract with NBC. Her first appearance as part of the deal was to appear on the National Barn Dance on January 30th of 1937. Minnie was to get $500, that's about $8,100 today, if she sang on the show, or $250 if she failed to utter a single note. I was unable to locate any reviews of her performance that night, but the fact that she was paid the full $500 speaks volumes. Minnie's success quickly spawned a large number of imitators who were all trying to cash in on this singing mouse phenomenon. Bloomington, Illinois had their own Mickey, Massachusetts had Mitzi, Tiny Tim performed benefit concerts for hospital children in Garner, Iowa, then a he-mouse who sang bass was found at the Zeta Tau Alpha Sorority at Northwestern University, and a singing mouse was paired up with a singing canary in Linton, Indiana. It just seemed like singing mice were popping up everywhere. I have to admit, even I've heard mice singing, if you can call it that. That's because my late cat Farnsworth would chase the occasional mouse around our old house, and of course he would be terrorizing them. 
And that's when the marketing guys at NBC decided it was time to cash in on Minnie's fame. They decided to hold a series of contests to determine which singing mouse was the greatest of all. The winning mouse from contests in England and Canada would compete against the U.S. Grand Champion in the Ultimate Singing Smackdown. The caption on a March 31, 1937 NBC press photo showed some of the contestants and read as follows, quote, Mousical edition. Twasn't the night before Christmas, but all through NBC broadcasting stations, no creatures were stirring except for the mouse. And the mice were singing plenty. Here are some of the mice auditioned for the title of America's Best Singing Mouse. The final decision will be given by eminent musical judges on Sunday, April 11th, when the mice sing over the NBC Blue Network from 3.45 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The best American mouse will meet the British champion in an international broadcast for the World Championship. Peggy, NBC's mousical instructor, is coaching the rodents. And that's the end of the press release. I have honestly no clue who Peggy was, but I can tell you that one of the judges to choose the American winner was Mickey and Minnie's cartoon creator himself, Walt Disney. They chose a silver gray mouse named Mikey Brown. He, along with the world favorite Minnie, was scheduled to go up against English champion Mickey and the Canadian winner Johnny. And the winner of the world championship, the best singing mouse in the world was... Well, sadly, just like you, I don't know who won. I searched for hours through the newspaper and magazine archives trying to find the answer, but no one seemed to follow up on the story. I guess singing mice just suddenly fell out of favor with the public. Then the sad news came on October 26 of 1938 that Minnie had passed on for what was presumed to be old age. Minnie was survived by seven litters and numerous grandchildren. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On Tuesday, November 1st, 1938, the Chicago Jamboree, that's the same show in which she had made her first of four radio performances, eulogized Minnie, followed by a few moments of silence. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. How about that singing, Ken? From now on, I'm singing in all of Crosby's pictures. You know, I guess I have been a little rough on old man Cros today, but just to show him my heart's in the right place, I'm going right out and buy him a Christmas present. If I can get a tube of that ever-loving stuff at the drugstore. Well, Bob, if you're serious about getting Bing a Christmas present, I'd like to make a suggestion. Well, look at old Ken Carpenter. What are you selling? Hmm? <laughs> I'm here on behalf of the Elgin Watch Company. Well, wrap one up and send it out to Crosby. I can't think of a better gift for old Father Time. <laughs> oh, Bob, it's wonderful of you to do this. I'll have Bing's Elgin delivered right away. COD, call on Dad. <laughs> <laughs> remember, <old> remember? <laughs> 
Well... Wearing knickers in those days. <laughs> no one would mind footing the bill for a beautiful star-timed Elgin. Yes, American-made Elgins are real values, distinctly styled and reasonably priced. True, how true. Yes, it's true Elgins have been scarce because skilled Elgin craftsmen have been busy turning out precision instruments and timing devices for our armed forces. Help to maim those guns. But now Elgin is concentrating on the production of watches, and there can be more proud Elgin owners. So commemorate important dates with a lovely star-timed Elgin. Give one for anniversaries, graduations, birthdays. And this year, be sure to commemorate the Crosby Centennial. (laughs) (laughs) You can't find the model you want. Be patient. Your jeweler will soon have more of these superb timepieces. And you'll be glad you waited for an Elgin. I'll wait a lifetime if I must. Well, while you're waiting, Bob, how's for sticking around for some more music? So nice of you to ask me, Don. I'm ready. Say, where in the world do those notes come from, Hope? I'm wearing John Charles Thomas' chest protector. Well, I'll have you know that I'm supposed to sing right about here. Shall I join you? The title of the song the Bobcats and myself are going to do is All By Myself. All By Yourself. Well, that's how you wind up when you finish the song. All right, Perry Como fans, follow me. That commercial for Elgin Watches is from the fourth annual Elgin Christmas show that was broadcast on Armed Forces Radio. The first show was broadcast in 1942 as a way to bring a little cheer to the soldiers fighting in the Second World War. This particular show with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in that bit was broadcast for Christmas of 1945. The Elgin Watch Company was started as the National Watch Company way back in 1864 in where else but Elgin, Illinois. It went on to become the largest mid-priced American manufacturer of watches, and at their peak, they were shipping over 1 million watches per year. But, as they say, nothing lasts forever, and no company ever stays on top. Eventually, lower-priced imported watches started to steal away their market, and of course, their sales rapidly declined. Elgin ended all U.S. manufacturing in 1968, and the company was sold off not long after that. They can still purchase Elgin-branded watches, but that's really all they are. They are watches made in China with the Elgin name on them, but they have nothing to do with the original company. Of course, how many people really use watches anymore? Nearly all of my students simply pull out their cell phones to see what time it is. In other news, here are a few Christmas stories that made the news many years ago. In April of 1938, 11-year-old Earl Baker, who was a resident of Coatesville, Pennsylvania, decided to make a daring leap onto a moving freight train. Sadly, he wasn't successful and lost his right leg as a result. Now, Earl's mom was a widow who struggled to feed her nine children, so there's just no way she could afford to buy him an artificial limb. The $250 price tag, which would be about $4,000 today, was just out of reach. But Earl did have some hope. A stranger informed him that if he could gather up 50,000 matchbox covers, he could trade them in for a prosthetic leg. So Earl started to collect the covers, but soon found out that he'd been hoaxed. You see, the matchbox covers were essentially worthless. And that's when Mayor A.P. Bergstrom announced that anyone willing to help could stop by the municipal offices and make a donation toward the purchase of a new leg for Earl. Within one week, the citizens of Coatesville contributed $379.90. Then, on Christmas Day of 1938, Earl was presented with his new leg. The remainder of the funds raised was placed into a trust fund, and that was to help pay for repairs and replacement of the leg when it was needed. 
are next to occurred in April of 1946 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Seven-year-old Norbert Lissardi, whom everyone called Butch, was walking home from school one day and saw three high school boys with a mouse. Now, the boys were being quite rough with the mouse, and when Butch questioned what they intended to do with the mouse, one of the boys replied that they intended to kill it. Butch was appalled by that answer, but realized there was no way he could fight the three larger boys to save the life of that mouse. But he had a better idea. So Butch ran home and he pulled open one of his dresser drawers. And hidden in the back was his most valued Christmas gift. It was a sparkling silver dollar coin. And he had been saving the coin to buy something special. You know, but saving the life of an animal just seemed more important at that moment. So then Butch ran back and he exchanged the silver coin for the mouse, whom he appropriately named Silver. But there was one problem. That is that Butch knew nothing about caring for a mouse. So he went to see a woman who had always been nice to him. That was Mrs. A.B. Beverstock, who lived at 700 East Juno Avenue. And she took one look at the little creature and informed Butch that Silver was not a mouse. Instead, he was a hamster. She provided Silver some much-needed food and a place to rest. And her husband then said, quote, I guess we'll have to keep him for you, the housing shortage being what it is. And here's a dollar to replace the one that you spent. At first, Butch said, nah, thank you, but was eventually persuaded to accept the dollar and let the couple care for Silver. In the last story I have for you today, Herbert and Irene Ball of Long Beach, California had been driving through Linwood on Christmas Eve of 1963. Their car was wrecked in an accident and all of their groceries and Christmas gifts were just scattered all over the road. Another Long Beach resident, that's Mrs. Pat Robertson, watched as the couple's car was being towed away, and she offered to drive the couple and their six children home, even though she was on her way to a Christmas party at the time. Along the way, Mrs. Ball started to feel extreme pain in her knee, so Mrs. Robertson took her to the nearby Dominguez Valley Hospital. Doctors determined that she had fractured her kneecap, but they were unable to treat her because the family could not afford to pay the medical bills. As a result, it was recommended that Mrs. Ball be taken to General Hospital. But without a car, that longer distance meant she'd be unable to see her children on Christmas morning. That's when Mrs. Robertson decided to dig into her Christmas savings and pay the hospital bill. She then drove Mrs. Ball home with her Nina Cass so she could spend Christmas morning with her children. On Christmas, Mrs. Robertson picked up Mrs. Ball and drove her back to the hospital for a follow-up visit to make sure that everything was healing well. Mrs. Ball was quoted as saying, Mrs. Robertson's sacrifice was the grandest Christmas present I ever received. Mrs. Robertson's explanation of why she offered her help was fairly straightforward, quote, I couldn't let those six children sit on the street. After all, I have two grown children and now my grandchildren. I know what it means to see their eager eyes on Christmas morning. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And now for the answer to the question of the day. And I had asked you in what year electric Christmas lights were invented. Your choices were 1, 1867, 2, 1882, 3, 1889, 4, 1894, or 5, 1903. So which one did you choose? Uh, well, the correct answer was choice number 2, 1882. And the man who invented them was Edward Hibbert Johnson, who at the time served as the vice president of the Edison Electric Light Company. This really was a kind of an odd switcheroo, and that's because it was Johnson who had originally hired a young Thomas Edison to work at the Automatic Telegraph Company back in 1871. And Edison, as we all know, proved to be such a brilliant inventor that not long after that, Johnson was working for Edison. On December 31st of 1879, Edison strung up some of his bulbs outside his Menlo Park laboratory, and that was to generate some attention to his newly invented incandescent bulbs. Then, on December 22nd of 1882, Johnson went one step further. He hand-wired 80 red, white, and blue bulbs, and then he wrapped them around the Christmas tree in the parlor of his New York City home, and that, of course, created the first string of Christmas tree lights. But he wasn't done there. He set it up so that the lit tree spun around six times per minute on its base. One would think that Johnson's creation would have been an immediate smash hit, but in fact it wasn't. You see, candles, even if they could burn down your house, were cheap. Christmas lights, on the other hand, were not. Only the rich could afford them, and one needed an electrician to wire them up. Of course, that's assuming they even had electricity in your house to power the bulbs. Over the years, General Electric tweaked the design that was to create cheaper and cheaper bulbs that ran at cooler temperatures. By 1927, they were selling 24 million bulbs per year just for Christmas tree ornamentation. And of course, soon other companies jumped in on this new market and the Christmas tree light industry was born. It is estimated that over 150 million light sets are sold each Christmas around the world today. So that made me wonder what happens to all the millions and millions of bulbs that are discarded each year. Now, some end up in landfills, but there are companies overseas that can recycle them. I read of one company in China that has a machine that chops the strings into tiny, tiny little pieces, and then the different materials are mechanically separated. The metals, of course, are sold for scrap, while the plastics are used to make the soles of slippers, who would ever thought. Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. I do hope you enjoyed uh, listening to the story about the singing mouse. Um, if you're curious and like to read more stories just like this, go to my website. It's EinsteinsRefrigerator.com or UselessInformation.org. Either one will get you there. EinsteinsRefrigerator.com or UselessInformation.org. Just want to wish everybody a great holiday season and a happy new year. And I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.